Over the past year, you've likely heard a lot of headlines about the COVID-19 pandemic. And that's pretty understandable. The pandemic has had an undeniable impact on our daily lives and society. Yet while the world has been wrapped up in COVID news and adjusting to a new normal, natural disasters have not stopped. From coast to coast to coast, you're listening to Terra Informa. You're listening, you're listening. You're listening. to Terra Informa. My name is Elizabeth Dowdell, and I'll be your host for the next half hour of environmental news and stories. So this week in our November news roundup, the Terra Informers are gonna cover some of the natural disaster headlines and stories from 2020 that you may have missed. I'll be honest, it's not going to be a fun one. And if you want to re-listen to the Beyond Blathers takeover episode, well, I would completely understand. But I do hope you'll stay and listen through as we report on some of the biggest natural disasters of 2020 and why we need to be talking about them. And before we do that, we would like to acknowledge that this episode was written and recorded on Treaty 6 the historic and present territory of Cree, Métis, Blackfoot, Dene, and many other First Peoples that live and gather here. In an episode about natural disasters, we need to talk about our relationship to the environment and the ways in which it both nurtures and sometimes challenges us. We also need to talk about how that relationship is changing. Our treaty acknowledgement recognizes people that have lived here since time immemorial. People who have lived off the bounty of and in relationship with nature. But treaty acknowledgements are also about recognizing relationships between people. These acknowledgements are a reminder that those human relationships are not always equal. Like the relationship between Canada and the First Nations, Métis, and Inuit peoples across Turtle Island. Natural disasters are a threat that put all of us at risk. Every human that lives and will live on our shared earth. Yet, because of our unequal relationships, not all of us are equipped to withstand, adapt to, or recover from these disasters in the same way. But people are not powerless. They are speaking up and demanding recognition for their livelihoods, cultures, land, and survival. As you listen to this episode, and as you go about your daily life, we hope you think about what it means to live on treaty land, to reflect on the ways that unequal or unjust relations affect the people most at risk to natural disasters, yet who contribute the least to our climate crisis. Then think about leadership, To move forward as a resilient society to the threats facing us, we need to address the social and economic systems that cause injustice. These fractures and inequalities are what leave us vulnerable to the current health and economic crisis 
and the looming climate and environmental crisis. Now, while COVID has dominated headlines this year, you may have missed some natural disaster headlines. We cannot afford to ignore these disasters because they foreshadowed the environmental crisis and another devastating potential new normal. Let's start our episode with Charlotte Thomason covering hurricanes and tropical storms. As we wrap up the 2020 hurricane season, we reflect on the storms that stewed over the Atlantic, leaving destruction in their path. 2020 has been the most active year on record for tropical storms, clocking in at 30 so far. One of the major threats of a hurricane is high wind speeds, so hurricanes are rated on the Saffir-Simpson scale by wind intensity. There are five categories to the scale, which might suggest that storms at the lower end, or a category one, might not be that devastating. So let's set a baseline and talk about what a Category 1 storm on the Saffir-Simpson scale might look like. To be honest, I struggled to imagine what the experience would be like, but here's a little description. The sky is dark, rain is pouring from above, and somehow sideways at the same time. Near the coast, the waves are crashing so violently, the line between sea and sky dissolves. Then, the wind hits. It's not something you just feel, but a force that assaults your body, your vision, and your hearing. The wind is moving at 150 kilometers per hour. This is wind like nothing you have ever experienced before. Winds of this speed can uproot trees, blow down power lines, and rip the walls and roofs right off the foundation of a house. This is the lowest category on the Saffir-Simpson scale. To put the 2020 hurricane season in perspective, there have been multiple Category 4 hurricanes this year, each with winds up to 250 kilometers per hour. Each one has caused catastrophic damage, making the impacted areas uninhabitable for weeks or months. One notable storm, Hurricane Laura, first formed on August 21st over the Caribbean and caused rain and flooding that killed nine people. By August 26th, Hurricane Laura had strengthened into a Category 4 storm, and the next day it landed in Louisiana, killing another 27 people. This hurricane tore the rooftops off of people's homes while they huddled inside and cut power to almost one million people. November was a particularly active time for storms in the Atlantic. Hurricane Eta, a Category 4 hurricane that made landfall in northern Nicaragua on November 3rd, was one of the deadliest hurricanes this season. At least 100 people have died from this storm. Less than two weeks after Hurricane Eta, Hurricane Iota, another Category 4 hurricane, made landfall in Nicaragua. Sustaining winds of 250 kilometers per hour, Hurricane Iota has damaged homes and left almost the entire coast without power. 26 people have died from this disaster, due mostly to landslides and flooding caused by the hurricane. 
It is predicted that as the climate crisis intensifies, these kinds of severe and frequent storms will become the norm. Scientists are growing more confident that rising air and ocean temperatures are increasing the strength of hurricanes. The implications of this have real-life impacts on families, towns, and entire cities along the Atlantic coast. People are losing their homes, their belongings, their loved ones, and their lives. The aggravating effects of the climate crisis on tropical storms may seem distant and hard to grasp for landlocked regions like Alberta. However, this storm season reminds us that the crisis is already here, it is already rearing its ugly head in other parts of the world, and it will do so here soon enough. Here's Sonic Patel to talk about the 2020 wildfire season. Wildfires are among the most common natural disasters we experience in Alberta. One only needs to think back to last year to remember skies painted red, and Edmonton with the worst urban air quality anywhere in the world. Or think back four years ago to the Horse River wildfire that devastated the northeastern parts of the province, causing incredible economic harm and the evacuation of Fort McMurray. Wildfires are a disaster we have had to cope with often in Alberta's recent history, causing immense harm to wildlife and wildlife habitat, and human harm from evacuations, burned structures, and health impacts. Luckily, Alberta has been largely spared this year. Despite being a pretty quiet year, the numbers may still surprise you. This year saw 700 fires, and 3,300 hectares burned. By November of last year, Alberta had experienced 989 wildfires for a whopping total of 880,000 hectares burned, almost 300 times the area of the fires we've seen this year. However, the five-year average is 405,000 hectares, just over 100 times the burned area of this year. The largest Albertan fire of 2020 is the Devil's Head wildfire, west of Calgary, responsible for burning under 2,500 hectares. In comparison, 2019's Chuck Egg Creek fire alone was 100 times the area of all total fires this year. Chuck Egg Creek fire burned for 16 months, finally being classified as extinguished this October. Five of the 10 highest burn area seasons have taken place in the last 11 years, suggesting a trend of rising forest fire threats. According to University of Alberta scientist Mike Flanagan and colleagues, as well as other researchers examining wildfires in Canada, climate change is playing a big role in that increase. The changing climate means Alberta faces longer fire seasons, drier fuels, and more lightning so why exactly have we been lucky to avoid such dangerous wildfires this year? Alberta Wildlife Information Officer Travis Fairweather, interviewed in the Edmonton Journal, said the main factor was a cold and rainy spring, when the biggest wildfires typically occur. Another contributing factor, because of the COVID-19 pandemic, many camping and park tourist destinations have seen far fewer people. According to Mike Flanagan, professor from the University of Alberta, 
Humans are the leading cause of wildfires in Canada. The lack of people hiking, camping, driving through, or otherwise visiting Alberta's forests may have played a role in our calm 2020 wildfire season. But what does this mean for the future? It's hard to tell. Just because we had a relatively calm year doesn't mean we're out of the woods next year. A critical factor will be the weather in the fire season. Dry, hot, and windy conditions will literally fuel and fan the flames. Next year is a La Nina year, referring to a weather pattern affected by ocean currents and temperatures. This phenomenon means it's also harder to predict the weather. Flanagan noted that climate change impacts means that we will have more extremes. So while we may have another summer like 2020, relatively free from the smoke or fire hazards, we may continue to have record-breaking years. Alberta was lucky this year, but many other places were not. For an example of the other extreme, let's take a look across the border, to the west coast of the United States of America. A significant dry season at the start of the year set the fuel for the fires to start in March and April. High temperatures, coupled with lightning storms, made conditions favorable for wildfire. By August 19th, the governors of Oregon and Washington declared states of emergency. In August, California experienced three of the largest wildfires in their recorded history, with the August complex becoming the largest single wildfire recorded before merging with another fire to reach a total wildfire area of 3,000 square kilometers. There are 28 countries with less area than that wildfire. According to the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, wildfires between August and October in 2020 have resulted in 4 million acres burned, doubling the previous record set in 2018. Five of the top six wildfires in California's history have happened this year. Oregon also saw record-breaking levels of wildfire spread and damage. 10% of the state's total population were under evacuation orders from the threat of fire. In total, these fires resulted in 41 deaths and undetermined amounts of economic damage and human health impact. One big factor in these historic wildfire seasons is climate change. Heat waves, summer storms, and droughts bring fuel and the spark to have these wildfires rage. Several of the many fires were caused by humans, but the conditions that led to these fires rising in magnitude and frequency can be attributed to changing climate. One study found that the burn area from 1984 to 2015 would be half of what it has been without anthropogenic climate change. The other big factor, fire suppression. While it may not feel like it, fire is a natural part of the forest's life cycle. Fires are important for clearing forest debris, renewing the soil, and allowing new growth. In fact, many indigenous groups to the area would let natural fires burn and would use control burns to support the growth of the forest. As colonial settlers began to take habitat on these lands, they would adopt a practice of putting out all forest fires 
to protect homes and timber, and would even fine indigenous peoples for managing the land as they had been for centuries. As you can imagine, without regular, smaller fires, timber and flammable materials can build up in the forest. So when fires do start, they can quickly grow and become out of control. Adding to that, climate change contributes to the conditions that have allowed for the magnitude of fires that we saw in the United States this year. Like hurricanes, this has been a record-breaking year for wildfire disasters. And while Alberta was largely spared in 2020, climate change means that, before long, we could soon be facing a similar scale of disaster, like we have so many other years in the last decade. If we seek to be resilient to wildfires, we need to consider how our forests are changing as the climate changes, and how we can seek to better manage our natural splendor, the forest. You're listening to Terra Informa. This week, we're covering some of the biggest natural disaster headlines of the year. We're not trying to get you down, but want to remind you that our health, economic, and environmental systems are inextricably linked and could all benefit from some care and collective action. You just heard Sonic Patel talking about the 2020 wildfire season. Next up, we have Andrea Miller talking about spring flooding in Alberta. Think back to April of this year, a time when many of us were self-isolating and social distancing. Because of this, we may not have paid close attention to a major ecological event happening in northern Alberta. An ice jam had formed on the Athabasca River, which flows north from the Columbia Ice Field in Jasper National Park and into Lake Athabasca, in northern Alberta near Wood Buffalo National Park. Located on the banks of the Athabasca River, the community of Fort McMurray watched as a nearly 25-kilometer-long accumulation of ice formed on the river. Unable to flow freely downstream, the water breached the riverbanks and flooded much of the eastern part of downtown Fort McMurray, forcing 13,000 people to evacuate from their homes one fatality was reported as a result of the rushing water. The flood damaged over 1,200 structures, many of which were also impacted by the 2016 Fort McMurray wildfire and led to more than $520 million in insured damage, according to the Insurance Bureau of Canada. The flood impacted essential services like grocery stores, left the Fort McMurray food bank underwater, and meant that the community had to implement boil water advisories, which lasted until June in some neighborhoods. Regional Municipality of Wood Buffalo Mayor Don Scott spoke about the potential need for military intervention and the use of explosives to break apart the ice blockage, as had been done in past ice jams. But the size of this ice jam meant that those methods were not feasible, and all that was left to do was wait for warmer temperatures to soften and melt the ice which they eventually did, leaving the community to clean up after water levels receded. West of Fort McMurray, along the Peace River, 
The residents of Fort Vermilion were experiencing the spring thaw in a similar way. A 40-kilometer ice jam had formed on the Peace River, flooding the community of Fort Vermilion and forcing 450 residents to evacuate. Now, ice jams occur as river ice breaks off and knocks more ice loose as it flows downstream, leading to an accumulation of ice that fuses together and creates a blockage in the river, particularly at a narrow bend of the river or at an island or shallow sandbar. While water can still flow below the jam, ice jams significantly hinder the flow of water and the blockage leads to a rapid rise in water levels and often flooding. Typically occurring in the spring with snowmelt runoff, ice jams are a natural part of freeze and thaw cycles, but they are also a hazard for nearby communities. Different than other types of open water flooding events, flooding from ice jams can happen very quickly and is very difficult to predict. The likelihood of an ice jam forming depends on the snowpack of upstream mountain ranges and how fast it melts, precipitation and how much water is flowing through the river, the thickness of the river ice, the shape of the river, and the air temperature. While both of these flooding events are being described as a 1 in 100 years flood, this has happened before on these rivers. At Fort McMurray, the Athabasca River has had 14 ice jam-related flood events since 1835. The last one was in 1997. But this year, the ice jam flooding in Fort McMurray happened much earlier than the normal flood season, which is closer to May or June. And according to the University of Saskatchewan Global Institute for Water Security's Dr. John Pomeroy, we saw a larger than normal snowpack this spring, in excess of three meters in some places. And that melting snow will have to go somewhere. So is this a trend related to climate change that we should be concerned about? According to a 2019 report and lead author Dr. Benoit Turcotte, a government of Yukon hydrologist, the complexity and unpredictability of ice jam floods make it difficult to predict if they will become more frequent due to climate change. But given the trends we are seeing, an increase in the snowpack, winters that are becoming less severe, and ice breakup events happening earlier in the year, it means an increase in the potential for ice jam floods is likely. Yet there are limited records of observed or reported historical ice jams, meaning that now more than ever there is an urgent need to document these events. A new national ice jam database being developed by Natural Resources Canada is a step towards addressing this gap. And Alberta Environment's River Forecast Centre carries out 24-hour ground and satellite observations of river conditions. So as our climate continues to warm, strategies like spatial and temporal ground and air surveys and the use of satellite imagery can really help us better understand ice jams. And the inclusion of Indigenous traditional knowledge of past ice jam floods and lived experiences of current ice jams in flood planning is more valuable than ever. The devastation of open water flooding has meant mass investment into flood protection in this province, and the same must be extended to ice jam floods. Allocating research and resources to ice jam flood mitigation and prevention can help to build more flood-resilient communities in the face of climate change. 
Here's Hannah Cunningham talking about ice storms. As someone who's lived on the prairies their whole life, I'm not very familiar with ice storms. I'm more used to blizzards and winter storms with whipping snow and howling winds. However, if you live in parts of eastern Canada, you're probably no stranger to storms that leave trees, structures, and roads encased in pure ice. Ice storms can occur whenever a layer of warm air becomes sandwiched between a layer of colder air closer to the ground and another layer of cold air higher up in the atmosphere. When precipitation forms in the upper layer of cold air, it begins as snow, then transforming into rain as it enters the middle warm air layer, and then changing to ice or freezing rain as it re-enters the lower cold air layer. These droplets will freeze as soon as they hit the surface below. These storms can be dangerous. Not only do they make walking or driving on slick sidewalks and roads precarious, but the structures that become encased in ice can become heavy, weighed down by the coating of frozen water, and can be susceptible to collapsing. According to Hydro One, an electricity transmission and distribution utility company in Ontario, ice storms can often cause power outages due to heavy tree limbs taking down power lines. On top of that, the icy conditions can make it more difficult for power utility crews to travel to downed power lines and repair them. An ice storm that occurred in 1998 went down in history as one of Canada's major natural disasters. Over a period of six days in January of 1998, sections of the St. Lawrence Valley were bombarded with up to 100 millimeters of ice pellets and freezing rain. The impacts of the storm were huge. Power outages affected 1.4 million people in Quebec and 230,000 people in Ontario, 2.6 million people were prevented from traveling to work, 945 people were injured, and 35 people died. While there has yet to be an ice storm that has matched the severity of the one in 1998, researchers expect that our warming climate will bring more rain during the winter months in the southern areas of eastern Canada, meaning that conditions that cause ice storms could occur more frequently. The first few months of 2020, brought us a few notable ice storms. In January of this year, an ice storm caused power outages and slick conditions in both Ontario and Quebec. Hydro-Quebec reported approximately 137,000 customers were affected by 125 different outages across the power network. In central Ontario, the storm resulted in hundreds of Hydro One customers seeing power outages in the hardest hit areas. Many areas in central Ontario received between 10 to 25 millimeters of ice accumulation. In February, an ice storm hit Nova Scotia that resulted in power outages, school and travel cancellations, and the rescheduling of two Atlantic University Sport Curling Championship matches. At the peak of the power outages, the freezing rain knocked out power for more than 18,000 Nova Scotia Power customers. As we move into the winter months, it remains to be seen what this season will bring in terms of ice storms for eastern Canada. Meteorologists have predicted that, due to a La Nina season, southern areas of eastern Canada will see milder temperatures this winter, which may lead to more mixed precipitation and rain events. That's all the time we have for this week. 
Across these stories, there is a clear trend. Natural disasters are increasing in magnitude and frequency impacted by the effects of a changing climate. While our attention, very justifiably, has been focused on the disaster unfolding on our front doorstep, we cannot ignore the crisis looming at our back door. A changing climate and loss of biodiversity will cause harm on a scale more immense than any natural disaster we have experienced to date. It may sound grim, but we are in this together. So from all of us here at Terra Informa, stay safe, take care, and continue the fight to reduce the climate crisis and build our resilience to the challenges to come. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you next week, right here on Terra Informa. Terra Informa is a production of CJSR 88.5 FM, and all our content is created by a team of volunteers. If you like what you heard, check out our website, Facebook, or follow us on Twitter.